Hey guys, welcome back to the Lou Perez podcast. My name is Lou Perez. If you'd like to support the podcast, if you'd like to support me, please head over to the louperez.locals.com and join the Lou Perez community. If you hear some uh, music, my son is, uh, is composing right now. A few weeks back, my wife and I had the pleasure of watching a documentary called Red Dog. It was one of the best documentaries I'd seen um, definitely in a while. We thoroughly enjoyed it. And I was like, hey, why don't I uh, look up the guy who made it? And that guy is Luke Dick. He's a songwriter, a musician, storyteller. He made this fantastic documentary about the strip club where his mother and her friends used to work in the 70s. We had a really great conversation. I hope you enjoy it. And please check out the documentary Red Dog and by the soundtrack that should be available now. I'm very happy to be joined by Luke Dick. He's a musician, a songwriter, singer, uh, and also he has this amazing documentary called Red Dog that is available now. I got to watch it on Amazon, and uh, I absolutely loved it. And one of the things that I've been noticing, Luke, is uh, so much of my time uh, is spent on negativity and bullshit online and all that, mm -hmm. that I really love the opportunities to talk about stuff that I love and stuff that I thought was was gr great and entertaining. And your documentary is, is certainly, uh, certainly up there. So thank you for making it. For yeah, one. well, I'm <clears throat> glad to be a part of some joy. Um, <laughs> For anyone, really, um, I don't, I don't know if it's a an aesthetic, but um, I know when we set out to make the movie that the movie, since it's about strippers in the '70s who are now 60, 70 years old, it could could have easily been a dark film and heavy, um, but honestly, the stories in it were. Um, a lot of them were wrought with joy. Um, and then some of them were wrought with pain as well. So I feel like, um, the, the work to make it joyful was fairly easy because my mother's generally a joyful person. Yeah. And maybe we could talk about that because your mother is one of the stars of the, of the film. And how did, uh, for one, how did it come about? Uh, maybe we could talk about just you know what the Red Dog was, uh, if you can explain that. And then Red Dog is a it's a um, a topless bar in Oklahoma City that started as a go go dancing place in the mid '60s, and it's still open um, today. So it's um, somewhat of a rite of passage. It's notorious in Oklahoma City. Everybody knows what it is um, if they're from Oklahoma City. And um, so there is some um, historical um, aspect to the film, cultural history. Um, I was actually a history major, and I invited my history, uh, my favorite history professor, to an early screening of it. And he's like this... 80-year-old sort of Tom Landry-esque, very, uh, or more like Jimmy Stewart or something, and inviting Jimmy Stewart to a movie about a topless joint and telling them that it's my contribution to history. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it is social history in a way. 
Um, but my mother, I knew that she worked there even as a young kid, but it wasn't until I was 11 that I figured out that she wasn't just a bartender at this place. And she had about five or six had stopped working there. And so 11 or 12, I figure out that she was a dancer. And I just kind of stuck that information in my head. It wasn't that significant to me really by then because we had a pretty normal lifestyle in the middle of nowhere in Oklahoma. And then um, I became interested in stories more as I got older, 18, 19, 20, um, enjoyed conversations with people. And then, I don't know, they're not called podcasts then. Things like NPR stories like This American Life, um, I found really compelling and liked that medium. And I was a musician and a songwriter already. And I thought this would be interesting to just get my mom, record some stories and see how it works. And so that was the beginning of it, was me recording stories from her and then cutting them into two or three minute pieces and scoring them. And then I, when I was living in New York, I got a camera and started really falling in love with cinema and I turned it into a documentary um, not long after that or said that I'm not going to I had interest from This American Life they were produced in the middle of producing a story and then I sort of bailed on all that because I wanted to make a film about it and then come come back to a, any sort of story about it that was strictly audio yeah was it um was it tough to get your mother to open up um, in at the start of it, or God, is it something no. you had to coax her to do? No, um, she's such an open book as a person, um, and it really comes through in the film. And most of the women on the film were easy to talk to in terms of just asking them about their life, and they all seemed to find a catharsis in talking about their youth um, because it was such a culture that they identified with in a way, and. So um, I just treated it as anybody else with, I don't know, anybody else. That's not a good way to put it. Treated it as some somebody who's genuinely um, interested in their story and just asked the next question of, of whatever curiosity came out of their story um, and it led to the next thing. So my mom was not at all trepidatious about... Um, going on film, except that she has in retrospect said, I thought it was something that you would do for a hot minute and then drop it. And is it, it really it, didn't. Is that yeah. part of your, your, your character? Like kind of, is that, is that the kind of person you no, are? No, not at all. I mean, I, I've been, uh, I made no money as a musician and songwriter for 15 years and just kept at it until I found success, you know, and, and just like, what part of me doing me um, ever led you to believe that the, I, if I was flying out, because by then I wasn't living in Oklahoma anymore. And if I'm flying out and filming this stuff, it's eventually going to happen. I care it up about it. And so the real turning point there was she was a nutritionist at a nursing home. Um, and, um, the, the free press rag in Oklahoma City is called the Gazette. And I ran a, a Kickstarter page. We were right at the end of, of 
filming maybe or, or getting close to being done filming we thought and then i met this guy from kickstarter and he's like i love this project why don't you run a kickstarter i'm like i really don't need money for it honestly um i could just keep doing it out of my pocket on the side or whatever and he's like just trust me just do this it's going to develop such a fan base for the project and so we did it and then all these new characters came out of the woodworks that were seminal to the to the film and then also it was the the campaign itself was somewhat of a of a regional viral sensation in Oklahoma because people got excited and intrigued by the idea of somebody doing a film about such a notorious part of Oklahoma culture. And it was on the cover of the Gazette, which is distributed everywhere in Oklahoma City. And so my mom had to go talk to her boss and she was all scared and crying and stuff. And I was like, oh my God, you know, and then like, kind of guilt set in like what am i doing you know an expose I, on my mother yeah, <laughs> yeah and, and it really wasn't ever meant as an expose it's right. just that my mother you know then she was mid 50s pushing 60s she's not going around putting that on her fucking resume you know right. um, to get a job as a nutritionist so that was um a little sticky and she, but then she was like i told you that i would do it and i made a promise and um, I want to do it. And so then we did it and she's become somewhat of a sensation in Nashville. She goes to like industry events when I get a number one or something like that. She'll go and everybody's obsessed with her because she's so affable and charismatic and magnetic as a person that it comes through on the film. And and so I've, I would like to think um, maybe this is just me saying this to assuage my own guilt, any guilt that I have. Um, well, I would like to think that it val- that it was validating in some way, you know, to look to have a retrospective on somebody's life like that, and and also people really do um, genuinely um, love her. Are my agent for the film? We debuted at South by Southwest, and he's just this quiet guy you know and i it was all business all the time with him you know it's every meeting was 15 minutes just the facts get get the fuck out kind of a thing and then he after the film it was a packed house it was everybody was loving it and he came up to my mom he's and he's just like i just want to say i love you so much and i was just like this guy you know who i didn't Mm -hmm. get an iota of emotion out of the entire time I deal with him. He's like adopting my mother in a way, you know, and, and he, he kissed her on the cheek and I was just like, Whoa, you know, I did not see that coming. I, I'm a, this, my stoic agent yeah. is kissing my mother on the cheek. You know, I wonder when your mother, you know, said, Oh, I thought, you know, you'd be, you know, putting this off to the side or something like that. I wonder if, if it, if it's almost her way of, saying like, ah, maybe my story isn't that interesting or something like that. Because I find a, a lot of people like, you need to you need to tell them, they need someone to say, no, 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 your story is amazing and mm-hmm. we need to tell your story. Um, and, and it's sort of like, I, I'm just thinking like, if it wasn't for you, I'm like, where does this story go? Like, is this just kind of lost to history? Is it something that, you know, when your your mom and her friends get together, you know, they reminisce a little bit, but then but then it's gone. It's out there. I think that's it. But 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 there was they also would reach out to each other. My a lot of my mother's lifetime friends were people that she met in that era of her life. 
And so there was a definite bond that happened from working in that industry. And, um, but I can't imagine, I don't know. I mean, I guess somebody technically could have done a film that's similar to that. Um, but I don't, I would also like to think that me and my co-creator have a, uh, a style about it in terms of dealing with humans on a human level in an, in a, in a film that you wouldn't think is going to actually be about human relationships and um, dysfunction, but then also hopefulness and triumph all, all from, you know, um, people who were strippers 40, 50 years ago or whatever. Um, so I feel like that's a unique twist, a retrospective this mm -hmm. far. When you were, when you and your partner were putting it together, uh, were there any moments when you're like, oh, I'm a little too close to this to be able to be able to weigh in on, say, like a cut or something like that? I don't generally like um, listening back to interviews that I do. I I don't think I've I, maybe I tried to listen to an interview one time and I can't listen back. And so um, I definitely had to lay off um, a, editing when it came to. I'm in the film, and so I'm sort of a third, almost a third person narrator in the film, and um, it's sort of the rug that ties the room together, so to speak. And um, I, I just trusted him to 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 cull it um, in a way that that allowed me to maintain objectivity about myself, and um, I was happy with what he did. Um, but th there were. It, there's a story, um, I guess we can, this is a spoiler alert. Um, well, these, can, can I do the first spoiler? I just yeah. want to do the first. Um, from your mother's uh, own testimony, she was one of the, probably the first woman to uh, be jazzle her vagina. Yeah. A, yeah. a, a, a V-jazzling yeah. or something. Yeah. I forget what it is technically. Yeah, that, that, was, um, that was the one. the one anecdote where I was like, this is so... <laughs> immodest it, that's putting it lightly such a euphemism um such a personal story that's both embarrassing and funny at the same time where um she ends up putting these sequins all around her groin area um and it was every time in the film i was like feeling the tension in the room, you know, because it's so in there and because it's almost strangely, the film is wholesome, but I mean, definitely a rated R wholesome. <laughs> and I was like, uh, God, please just everybody hang on because this story has a, 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 uh, a reason, you know, the story has a reason of being there. And, uh, and then there, there is a payoff and it's, I just didn't want to also to be, and, and these anecdotes are animated too. And right. it's, the animation is is funny. And, 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 and fantastic. And, the animation is so well done, man. Really good. Um, this painting behind me that you can see, mm -hmm. um, it's uh, by the same guy who animated um, the film. And he, when I moved to Nashville, um, he was my next door neighbor and he was always on his front porch painting out there. And I, I saw this painting. I loved it. And he was just getting into video and he was, he's just 
such an awesome cobbler and multimedia guy. And I'm like, you really need to be a part of the film. And, and we've since made a lot of um, like videos and, and worked, worked extensively together. And, and his name, if you want Casey, to- Casey Pierce, he's on Instagram as plastic diamonds. Anyway, he, um, um, did such an awesome job and there's such a, a real comic levity to the, um, to the animations in it and their crew or their, the, the anim, they're animated crudely. It's like obviously not the hi-fi Pixar kind of stuff, but it does the trick in such a stylistic way. But he, um, that story comes about as one of the anecdotes, but it's before the twist of the film being a serious film. And I'm just like, God, I hope people don't walk out because I don't want my mother's life to be some kind of stupid fart joke or something like, like a cartoon. that. You know? yeah. Right. yeah. 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 And, and, but, but my favorite part is that that story is so inside and, and blue and, but then there's a twist right after that about self-worth and validation and all of this, which I'm just like, that is such a payoff to me to have the, that story back to back with this monologue about how she felt um, as a dancer and how she felt in relationship to herself. Um, so I, I still stand by it, I guess, from a directorial perspective. Oh, yeah, 100%. Um, and before I, uh, I I gave my spoiler, you said you were gonna uh, give a spoiler that was of your the own spoiler. Actually, oh, it was. That was I beat you. Yeah, to that it. was. We were on the we were on the same page. Um, <laughs> and it's just an anecdote, so it's not too much of a spoiler, but it gives you a little inside peek at some of the behind the scenes um, yeah. dilemmas of uh, of of uh, stripper life. You know, I'm, I'm wondering. Um, so just to talk a little bit about about myself and my own my own story my my dad is uh from Argentina originally immigrant Argentina and he tells me stories about his life and the stuff that that he you know he went through his his dad died when he was 8 so he was basically working since he was like 6 or 7 years old he uh got kicked out of high school when he was 16 he was banging women who are like you know in their late 20s maybe you know early 30s he's been shot at he used to carry a revolver around with him he used to have fist fights all the time and his is a story where i think very much like like your mother's where i'm like fuck i've lived a boring life holy (laughs) shit like 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 I'm the I'm the uh, the kid you know I'm the son who became an English major and I write and I do comedy as well, but like I could tell that story you know if if you give me the if you give me the story I can clean it up for you, but I can't live that story, and yeah. it was like wow, that's kind of the American dream aspect of the film really is that, um I mean my life compared to my kids' life is has been um a little more rough and tumble than or considerably more rough and tumble than theirs. Uh, and that's all. I feel like that's maybe the goal um, or the unstated goal maybe is trying to create a life for your kids that was better than the ones that the one, better than the life that you had, because no parent is going to say, 
gosh, I would love for my kid to rack up some experience getting shot at (laughs) or um, trying, uh, trying random drugs in a club, um, that kind of thing. You know, I, I read the Irving Berlin biography and one of the things that struck me was he moved out of his house. One of the things he liked to do for fun was swim across the East River <laughs> and back as an eight-year-old or something like that in the mornings. And then he got to be 10 and didn't feel like he was a good enough earner for his household. And so he moved out. It's too much. He was just too much of a burden for himself. And then he went down and started busking in um, Lower East Side um, to, to make ends meet and then became Irving Berlin. Um, <clears throat> guy who wrote White Christmas amongst many other um, American staples, you know. Yeah. When you uh, when you lived in New York, where uh, what neighborhood uh, were you in? I'm in uh, I'm in Brooklyn. I'm in Brooklyn Heights. Hmm. So from New York. I, li- I lived in I lived in East Village for a few years. It was um, it was. I, it's hard to. Co- it was not rough, you know, by then it's 2009 through 2013 or something like that. And, uh, it was such a pleasant place to live because there's great food, but there's all, there was also still a melting pot feel to it that I'd never gotten in the building that I was living in, in Stytown had, uh, more people in it than the whole community within a, 10 mile radius, you know, that mm-hmm. I lived in kids. So it was a nice juxtaposition to get a taste of a real city with people from all over the world with all different kinds of experiences. And you're up against right next to poverty, you know, sometimes, and then right next to oddity at other times. And I missed that a lot. You know, it's, um, I live in the most densely populated part of Nashville, Tennessee. Um, and it's nothing, even though I can walk to some restaurants here in my neighborhood, it's, um, certainly not the kind of beat that I was walking in New York. Yeah. I went to, uh, I went to NYU and, um, I had a uh, friends of mine who were studying acting and mm-hmm. one of them was from, from Georgia. The other one was from Oklahoma actually. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I will never forgive them for is they got rid of their accents and and i'm like and i'm like fuck don't do that don't do that man like there's some um that i think that there's there's a real beautiful sound to just southern accents in general that i really like i just got um offered to read a part um i can't say anything about the movie but it was such a strange thing to come through to say come read for this don't change your accent um, it's this film set. Now you're in your head. Um, you're going to be in your uh, head the whole time. You're like, Am I know, I? I know. what kind of Oklahoma accent do you want? Right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I, a- I was, I was, a, I taught college when I was living in New York and I, I went up to, uh, host a, a lot of the CUNY schools I taught at and the one up in the Bronx called Hostos, Hostos. Um, it was, uh, about a 30 minute click up, up the, what's the four, five, six line. And, and, um, I had like three hours or four hours in between classes and I decided just to take a, 
a class, um, an acting class up there. And it was this beautiful woman from Puerto Rico who, um, who was an actor and a filmmaker, really vibrant person. Um, but she had gone to NYU. And so it was, a, I felt like I had a by proxy <laughs> taste into a decent education in that, um, we'd start out with yoga and breathing and all this stuff, you know, and learning how people walk and where they carry their weight and stuff right. like that. Such an interesting thing to me. I, I went to uh, city college for grad school. Um, and I taught uh, up there um, while I was going through graduate school, taught a few classes like, uh, I don't know if they were called expository writing and literature and, and that, uh -huh. and that sort of thing. City college. I taught at city tech was not that which is in brooklyn heights cuny city tech in okay. Brooklyn. okay yeah I, city I, college I, is is up uh was it convent avenue 100 mm -hmm. like 137th or something mm -hmm. like that mm -hmm. uh that's where i was um so with uh so with the doc and now you're you're putting out an album mm -hmm. with is this all music that was already in the doc or is this music inspired by by it, the doc there's there's um music that was in the dock um directly and then there was some there's like there's a couple of b-sides that didn't make it into the film as well that were inspired directly by the by the film and then some of the songs were were just sound beds that didn't have lyrics to or sound beds that i didn't use the lyrics to when i put them slipped them into the film or whatever um but yeah, that it's been a musical creative process along the way too, because I scored the film and then wrote songs for the film. And now in December 4th, we're putting out the, the record, um, that is the, the music, music from the documentary Red Dog. So I'm really excited about it. And it was interesting to create something that was so heavily conceptual in a way, because it was, directly inspired and re relative to the characters in the film. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've been, uh, uh, after I watched your, uh, the documentary, I went online on YouTube and as you do, mm -hmm. and I looked up your songs and I think ever since we communicated about doing this, uh, this, this episode, I've been listening to connected and heaven knows Back to back, back to back, back to back, and they're from that's from a from a little while back. I think like yeah. two thousand seven, two thousand eight. Yeah, um, but I absolutely love those tracks. And I, those were written in New York. It's actually two thousand twelve. Those came out, and oh. they um, they um, were all written and produced in my apartment in New York, um, and were really special to me. And heaven knows was a song that i'd written that was based on a friend of mine's um short story she was a is an author who writes um she writes fiction but she also um is a successful children's book writer her name is uh coulter jackson and my um kid uh, made her a um, retroactive uh, godmother and created a contract with a seal on it and all this <laughs> stuff. My kid was 
10 years old at the time or something like that. But um, Coulter had had this um, book about a frog. Um, I, I don't remember exactly the frog looks at the water in the drain or I don't, I don't remember what happens, but I was like, I would like to do a little spinoff of that. And could we create a, an animation based on your story? And she was like, yeah. And so me and her and my, actually my collaborator for Red Dog, who I met in New York, that was one of our first projects to do together where we conceived of this animated story that was, um, that was related to the song that I made that was inspired by her book. So it was this sort of interwoven thing. Um, really, really fun to make. And then Connected, we did a video for, which was, um, we made that at my kid's school at Eastside Community, um, which is in the East Village, and got a few kids to be in the video. And then another artist from New York that I'd met at a coffee shop and all of his art, Ben Wright Coleman, Benjamin Wright Coleman had all of his um, art up on the walls at this coffee shop and I just loved it. And so he came on board to do drawings and stuff for it. So it's, that's, I've always loved collaboration like that. Yeah. And I notice a real, a real playfulness with the videos that you make that I, uh, that I really like. Um, and the, the one, you know, heaven knows uh, the, you know, you're singing about, you know, wondering what's going to happen or the character, what's going to happen when this character dies, you know, is mm-hmm. this, you know, what, what, what will the worms be doing? What will, mm-hmm. what will I end up becoming? But yet mm-hmm. it's so playful, especially with the uh, you know, animated toilet and the frog kind of, <laughs> kind of, kind of jumping towards it. <laughs> yeah, it was, you know, it kind of stemmed from this question about the afterlife that my kid and I, um, we're having to was related to that. And so it's the story of a frog talking to his tadpole kid. Um, and then they go off on these little explorations of what death could be. And Mm -hmm. it's, I'm still really proud of that. Um, it's hard to stay proud of things that you do a decade ago or whatever, but that one was such a joy to make and to have, um, what's the word camaraderie with your friends that are making it and have it be a meaningful piece. Yeah. And I think, I think now it's really tough with, um, just, uh, just kind of like YouTube and social media in general, where, uh, I started out, uh, doing, doing videos on YouTube, I think, and like over, over 11 years ago or something like that. Mm-hmm. And there was always the opportunity, the, there was always the chance that if you put something out there, people are going to see it. Right, and, and then it became where it's like, man, I put all this work into it. I put it out there, and it's like, damn, only like a few hundred people, a few thousand people yeah. seen it. Like, like, man, like people need to see this. I, I made this. I put everything into it. That's the hard thing about art in general is that, um, especially then where I, we were completely indie, um, and all that I was relying on to put it out there was just whatever algorithms are already in place and um, will it get passed on to somebody else? And generally the answer was no Um, (laughs) people, even if people like it um, it might get passed around in a few thousand people or whatever. But I mean, 
The other beauty of it is that here you are a decade later into it. And if somebody's into one thing that you do, they can still tap into the other things that you did that you're still proud of. Um, I've muted a few things that I didn't have <laughs> good representations of, of what I see myself as for, for good or bad, whatever. Um, I've always been one to trash all the old songs and not care that, that I put them in the recycling bin, you know, um, and just leave it at that. If you just keep making stuff, but now it's a little different, you know, when you have a, a little bit of a team around you, it's not like, I'm um, a part of a, of a huge conglomerate or anything media wise, but when you make something and then you get a distributor and they have their avenues and you have your avenues and you have your press people or whatever who help get the word out to get people to see things. Um, it's different now, but um, it's, there's still something interesting that there is still a zeitgeist that happens. Um, that was like the beauty and promise of virality, you mm -hmm. know? Oh, um, yeah. And, oh, and oh, you, yeah, people used to used to put out like um, whether it was on Craigslist or casting calls. They're like, "We're casting for a viral video," and it's oh, like well. you you didn't even make the video yet. How can you? <laughs> <laughs> and there, I don't know if there were back then if there was any real formula or something yeah. to create something, um, and and it informed my video making for my own music and that I was trying to create a narrative that was interesting that would play out. And, um, when I, it's changed my perspective a little bit on videos now because I have this indie band, Hey Steve and Hey Steve is kind of this unbridled, absurd, weird joy kind of thing. And, um, we, um, I talked to Casey and it's never about a narrative. It's like, cool. Um, I think maybe if we just, uh, if I put a wig on and just dance around in front of a green screen and you like put Godzilla in the background, I think that would be good. <laughs> Speaking of backgrounds, my, my wife is walking by. Yeah. With, with yeah. Our baby. It's cool. Yeah, That's yeah. uh, it's, it's like when the, I love the piece, uh, and, uh, where the newscaster gets busted in on by hello <laughs> gets busted in on by the kids and oh, the man yeah. or whatever you know <laughs> yeah that, his wife comes out and like pull, like pulls the kid away yeah. she's horrified and, uh, and it's like what, what are we you know what are we gonna do man I'm stuck in a one bedroom apartment in Brooklyn like we're, yeah we're, yeah we're living we're doing uh we're doing our thing um, my oldest <laughs> is down in Bushwick now going well kind of going to the new school virtually going to the new school, I guess I could say. So about almost done with a, a history degree there. It, um, is this going to be uh, another degree or? Not mine. It's my kid's degree. Oh, your kid's um, degree. My kid lives in Bushwick. Oh, I'm sorry. I missed that. Missed yeah, that yeah, yeah, yeah. So the kid's in Bushwick going, kind of going to the new school. Um, wow. Anyway, that's the kid who was 10 years old in the videos that you saw. <laughs> <laughs> when you're uh, when you're doing the project um, like Hey Steve, um, which I which I listen to and you're writing songs for other people, are you ever like 
damn, this song is perfect for this band or this artist, but man, I really want it. I want to keep it. Mm. I want to do it. I want to do it my own. How does that work out? Steve is, Hey, Steve is such a thing that it's hard to imagine pitching those songs to other people. Although weirdly the song fuck a bomb, drop a single was considered in country music, like by an artist. They're like, Oh, I'd love to cut that. And I'm like, how in the fuck are you ever going to cut that? Like, <laughs> how, how is that going to, how are you going to pull that off? Never going to be on the radio, which in that case, it's like, I don't really care. It's not, doesn't mean I can't record it and sing it and stuff like that. So it's not a point of contention, but then another country artist on Warner brothers, Charlie Worsham cut a song called birthday suit from, from Hey Steve. And you just never know, you know, it's like to me, creativity you just kind of have to chase the things that you're really excited about. And if I'm not excited about it, or at least my career anyway, some people aren't like this, but in my career, the only things that have meant anything to anyone have been wound up being on people's records or being a song on the radio um, has been, if I cared about it from its inception, uh, conception, inception, conception. Um, well, so, you know. someone's got to put it in your head first. So I guess inception. And then, yeah, yeah, there you go. Um, you even go. before the conception of it, right? Uh, right. So, um, uh, that I don't ever hold myself back if I feel like there's a song that needs to be happening, I mm -hmm. just get it. But it also causes you to be less precious about, oh, well, only 18,000 people listen to it on Spotify or whatever. It's like, I don't fucking care anymore, you know, it's like. I wanted people to love it and to get to get passed around. But it's like, if by the time it's out on Spotify, I'm on to writing two or three more or whatever, or, or on to doing something else. And um, I'll go play songs when we can play songs again, I'll play all of them and then be happy about it. You know? Yeah. I feel like um, in the stuff that I do. So for the past, um, how many over 10 years, it's been a, you know, doing like online content. And for a while I was with a, uh, with a project where it's basically a new video every week. And it was, uh -huh. it was such an experience where I couldn't enjoy the process. I couldn't enjoy the ride because it was like, you got to get it done, get it out. And I'm on to the next thing. And, yeah. and that could be, and that could be tough, especially, I mean, if you're, if you're finally at the point where you're making music and you, and you're making a living, uh, at, or if you're doing comedy and you're making a living doing comedy, it's like you need those opportunities to kind of step back and be like, this is pretty awesome. The, the right. fact that I get to do this. Sure. Um, I feel I, I worked in advertising. That was the first uh, time I ever made money for music in my life. Um, and I had a lot of um, liberal arts friends that I met in New York who found themselves in the advertising business. And I just, they said, well, we love your music. You should do this or, you know, whatever. Play music to this, play ukulele to this sweet and low track or whatever. And um, it was always, can you have it by tomorrow? You get the call at nine at night. Can you have, um, you know, a great song, you know, for Kotex by 8 a.m.? And I'm like, yeah, sure. <laughs> Uh, you know, what kind of emergency is this? You know, I don't even know. <laughs> Do people not know what, uh, you know, whatever. 
uh, sweet and low is right to second? Is there has there been a has there been a dip in sales or a right. dip in public awareness of sweet and low or Hunt's ketchup or whatever? Um, it didn't matter to me. It was just a way not to have to do things I didn't want to do in life. Um, <laughs> I didn't mind driving forklift, um, but I'd rather be if given the opportunity whether to drive a forklift or play ukulele to a flying sweet and low package, I would pick playing ukulele to a flying sweet and low package every day of the week. Um, yeah. There's that, um, there's that old, uh, Bill Hicks bit where it's, uh, he basically says, if you work in advertising, kill yourself. He's like, no, seriously, kill yourself. And there's <laughs> such a advertising gets such a, a bad rap where, um, I feel like, you know, all the other arts are sort of the other arts. I'm already calling it an art. Uh, art is treated with such, uh, um, with such dainty fingers and like, it's mm-hmm. so special and held up so, so high where I, I saw, uh, the documentary about, uh, muscle shoals and the wrecking crew and yeah. stuff. Whereas like in a way, a lot of these players, these amazing studio musicians were like, Hey, look, I, I need you to come in here and figure this thing out for this pop, uh, for this pop song. Come on in. They're a day player. They go and they make it happen, and then they go home, and it's sort of like their version of Kotex is yeah, sort yeah, of yeah. is sort of like, hey, I need this song that the kids are going to make out to. You know, it's a tr- tricky, slippery, slippery slope. Um, to um, it's not like I really care about Hunt's Ketchup all that much, but it's like, look, um, and this may be just my working class roots showing here. Um, Look, um, everybody in music is trying, or in the music business, is trying to treat music as a commodity, um, and it's this big marketing artifice. In order to get songs out there, you gotta in country, it's country radio. You gotta get out to country radio. In rock, it's a little bit more atomized. It's like, well, there's some playlisting on on the digital servers of Spotify and Apple, whatever. And it's also the night the night shows and it's also press and it's also triple A radio or whatever. And it's it's all to be like and they've the artists have sold their rights away because it costs money to do all that stuff. And it's like you're already getting into the advertising slash marketing game. Um, because you want to market your your creativity for a living, um, so I, I'm, not, I'm not calling that disingenuous at all. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying that's the game that you're agreeing to in some way. If unless you're going to be a busker and just really not care about making a living at it, the only reason that music can make a living and or uh, and have the sort of faint whiff of the possible stardom or possible success is because it was commodified in whatever the after in the radio era 50 from the 50s on um i still hold it as i still hold music as magical sure um, and and its essence and songs as magical at their essence but to get into it um to make money there is a certain bit of grind that has to happen. You know, you, you, that they have to go on radio shows and do podcasts and stuff like that when they have a record to talk about. Um, and when I was making music for sweet and low, I'm, or hunts ketchup or whatever, I was just like, 
well, I, I had these real doubts about my own artistic merit or my own self-worth because it was like, nobody gives a shit. I can spend a hundred hours on a video and nobody seems to give a shit. So I don't know if I just don't have the talent, what I'm doing is not applicable enough on a, on a scalable level or whatever to actually make a living at this. Um, whoever created Hunt's Ketchup, well, they made something um, maybe that was worth eating or something. Or Se- that people second love. to Heinz. Second yeah. to Heinz ketchup. <laughs> yeah. A clo- a, a, a In the distance, ketchup wars, they distance, come in two. A, a distant second. Um, you know, I didn't create ketchup. I've, I don't know if I've ever created ketchup with a song because that's pretty big. You know, I mean, ketchup is a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I just, <laughs> I think, well, you know, whatever I'm, I'm here, I'm going to try to create something that I like mm-hmm. that could be an accompaniment to whatever thing they want to do, um, to sell their ketchup, you know, and I, I'm just like, fine, whatever it beats again. It beats, it beats working 12 hours, um, you know, moving steel around on a dock. Um, it's, yeah. it's, it's all, and then I'm, and then you're done after it's done, you know, it's like, shift it's a different kind of shift work on your own terms and with the sweet and low thing anytime you're at a diner and you look over and somebody's pouring some into their coffee you could be like just give yeah them a yeah little- yeah I've, i'm part of the reason you love that shit <laughs> you know I was, I, I was thinking about how how shitty it is that people are called uh one hit wonders you know mm-hmm. it's sort of like a like oh the where are they now this one hit wonder and it's like I wish people would just think about how hard it is to have to even get close to having a one hit. Yeah. To actually have a hit that has somehow penetrated out into the universe and that means something to people where they're gonna listen to it and play it over and over. Right. Over. I mean, it's that's still such a stroke of genius and luck. Yeah. Um I'm trying to think of a one hit wonder. Um I don't know why. I mean, most it? of the ones I think about are just sort of like eighties new wave, you know, just yeah, sort of like yeah, the yeah. I just haircuts. thought of yeah, for the first thing that, for some reason the first thing that came to my mind was Terrence DeArby's "Wishing Well." Oh yeah, yeah. You remember that song? Mm-hmm. It was such a groove, you know, and uh, it's such a beautiful groove. And I'm just like, wow, man, bless him for coming up with that. I'm so glad it's in my life. Uh, you know, it's um, been a companion in a way. Or Eddie Grant's Electric Avenue, I was obsessed with as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and strangely, that guy, he, he was working on some, working on some, you know, working out some political frustration in Electric Avenue. Somebody yeah. told me this. He, Jimmy Buffett is obviously not a one-hit wonder, but uh, somebody was telling me that Pena Colada is about. Um, two lovers who are um, frustrated with one another. And so they go out and they put out want ads um, to find a lover that's better s- suited. Them. And, you know, if you like me, you could yeah. get, getting get in lost the in the rain. Yeah. But that was, they had written the same want ad. So they find each other at the end. They, so they find each other again. And I'm like, how brilliant is that? <clears throat> how brilliant is that? Yeah. That's a great song. My, yeah. Uh, um, so your your son? Do, do you have uh, many kids? I have, I, have many. Four, I have one. I have one. Four. Kid. I have four kids. Okay. So uh-huh. it, it's gnarly. 
<laughs> so the oldest is is going for a history 20. major right now, uh -huh. twenty years old. So my my son just turned. He's gonna be around Thanksgiving. He'll be eight months. Eight oh wow! Months. So he's new. He's brand new. Yeah, yeah, it's fresh stuff. Yeah, and something that that I've I've really enjoyed is listening to music with him because mm -hmm. whatever I'm playing for him, this is the first time he's heard it, mm -hmm. and I can't tell you the amount of the amount of times I put on Righteous Brothers. Whether it's um, you've lost that loving feeling or yeah. or unchained melody, right? Uh, and I just hold them and slow dance, and I'm crying. And it's like, and it's a, it's a wild thing because I've heard these songs so much, but the fact, but it's almost it's new to him, and now it's new to me hearing it again, uh, hearing it for the first time. You know, meanings, uh, meaningfulness is can be constantly born anew. Um, with art and literature or whatever, depending on where you are in life and what you're relating to. That's the beauty of art and meaning in general. Um, my son, he, he should be like an A&R man or a publisher because he calls all my hits. Like before they get into the hands of artists or something, he's like, play that song again. Like, and then I'll ask, do you like that? Yeah, nah, it's all right. Play this other song, you know, from your whatever. And his, Used to be, you would think because he's he's such a he's a like just a radical, you know, radically loving, radically ornery, radically chaotic, radically like loving kid. Um, and his taste in music at first was heavy. Like I'd play like Magic Man or something like that or ACDC, and he was so into it. But he then he became into all this stuff like love David Bowie and, David, and Bowie's concept records, his later records, like his his last records. Emmett was obsessed with the death stuff, you know, mm -hmm. from Black Star, and um, then he but then he's into he's back there crying to Adele and uh, mm -hmm. and all this stuff, and I'm like, wow, what a feeler, man! This kid. Um, is such a feeler. You might have so, a young Clive Davis right there. Yeah, maybe. He'd be hopefully he's uh, he'll be nice to the artists, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I definitely have. Um, I was trying to think of the of if there's one band where anytime I put their music on, I'm immediately transported to my youth. And, yeah. and the the one band that does it that does it for me every single time is the band Deftones, which is a hmm. very very heavy. Yeah, I know the Deftones, of course. Heavy band with some melodic singing, and I'm like, shit, I'm 15 again. I'm just yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah. Uh, Nirvana does that to me mm -hmm. um, uh, for sure. Uh, Snoop Dogg's early records do that for me. You know, it's like boom. Um, it's it's crazy the pace nowadays when it comes to music. Like what you know, where it's sort of like, oh, that that's overrun to something new. Already. Yeah, 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 yeah. You put on the classic rock station, and you're like, "The Red Hot Chili Peppers are classic rock." <laughs> oh. My mom got my mom got super pissed because uh, they had a classic rock station in Oklahoma City. It's now defunct, but KRXO 107.7 KRXO. Sunday morning, they'd have um, they they started playing Guns and Roses on classic rock and she's like what the fuck is this <laughs> and uh, and then sunday morning over they played it on sunday morning over easy which was supposed to be like al stewart's time passages gordon lightfoot jackson brown then they played sweet child of mine on sunday morning over easy which was supposed to be easy listening and she 
like she went on a fucking diatribe. It was so <laughs> hilarious. I had it on film. I don't know. I lost it, but it was so funny. Yeah. This um, mm-hmm. going back to to Red Dog, your documentary. It must be such a trip for your mom and her friends to, for one, have this stuff documented. You know, for the you know for the first time, and to look back and just see how wild they were, how beautiful they were. You know, f- yeah. physically, like you know, they were yeah, all yeah, just yeah. gorgeous women. And also, I think, I think, like you mentioned earlier on, just you know how powerful they were too. And yeah, yeah, there that Connie has a line in in the film where most of them start dancing, and they're obviously the first time they dance, they feel self conscious, right. and they have to drink a lot before they're willing to get up there and do that. But then Connie said, "I took a while to get up there." But then once I got into it and got comfortable, I was really, there was, um, I was into the power of it, you know, the power that you could have over people dancing. And uh, I thought that was such a poignant thing to to see that. There was a, there's a, uh, I don't know, what do you call it? Influencer who followed the film. Jack the Stripper. Do you know who that is? I, I, I'm, I'm not aware of Jack's work. No. Well, she, Jacqueline, is Jacqueline. Uh, um, either is or was a stripper in, in, in Manhattan. And uh, she has such a, a interesting take on, on power and, um, and her business. And I just have appreciated along the way. And she came... I think I can't remember what NYC Doc. I think we we had we had a screening at NYC Doc, and um, she came to it, um, which was awesome to me. And then I, we had a, a, such a we had a paltry turnout um, in uh, San Antonio. We ended up winning best historical documentary down there. But as I was like staring at the twelve people in the room there, I was like, man, I should have just come in a day early. And buy fifty tickets and give them to strippers and <laughs> and have them come watch the film. You know, I thought that would be an interesting dynamic to add to a um, the culture of of uh, film festivals. You know, <laughs> Has it, have there been any offers to uh, to turn the story into either a series or a or a feature? Um, Casey and I have had a few people reach out, and it's always something that we entertain. Um, nothing has happened yet. Um, and we're off dreaming about other features and also sort of seeing this one through because there's obviously so much work like this. I mean, I'm just finishing the document or finishing the soundtrack, which because of COVID era, it just held everything up. And, um, it, uh, I have so many plates spinning that I'm like, let's just get through the marketing aspect of the film. And then we'll go back to the drawing board creatively. I mean, I feel like I have a lot of creative energy left in me to come back to something and, and do whatever. Right now, doing more work with a Red Dog spinoff since we spent a fucking decade on it doesn't sound like something that's at the top of my list. But if there was an interesting, another filmmaker that wanted to come in, that would be cool. Um, so Scorsese, if you're out there, um, I got a real doozy for you. Yeah, I've been, um, I've been uh, uh, 
uh, watching just a ton of stuff um, now that I've been home. And one of the one of the series that I rewatched uh, was uh, the series Deadwood on HBO. Yeah. And so I've been uh, I was rewatching Deadwood, and then the show's creator David Milch. I've been binging all of his talks that he gives. Okay, and, and uh, it's it that's one of those one of those project one of those series that it just raises the bar so high where you're like, you know what? I'm not even gonna f- fuck around with narrative mm-hmm. anymore. I'm just gonna like that's there. You know. You know, it's like you. I get that way, and I feel like it's like. I feel so dinky as a creator because I've only been dabble, dabbling in film for five years, maybe, you know, heavy. And um, you watch a Coen Brothers film and think, how in the fuck could I ever touch anything great? And the truth is, well, you can't until you do it for a long time. And when those guys are such brilliant creators, you may never touch what they do. But yeah. you have your own voice and you try to, cultivate that you know and hopefully it's something that's worth being out there that's unique enough that you can sit back and say well i did that and there's right. nothing like it and uh, i'm proud of it yeah and it's like thank god the the secret is you don't have to be that great <laughs> but meeting, yeah. me, meeting you don't you don't have to you know be able to touch the gods you know right, you could, you could right. do what you're doing but also you know you can you can do what you do and you can still have a huge impact on people. And, yeah. And I thought, like, uh, seriously, I, um, my, my wife and I, we watched Red Dog. We enjoyed it so much, and it was so well done. It did not, did not feel like a first-time film. Man, That's it, awesome, it, awesome it, to hear. And, and honestly, yeah. like, the, I've had an overwhelming response to it where I can't respond to people anymore because it's just too much. You know, there's too, too many places they're coming at you at, and I'm just like, tell management check all these emails if there's anything good you let me know um and thank goodness that it meant it it means something and every once in a while um there'll be something that comes through it's like you know my mom was a dancer and she died when this and that and the other you know and it's like this really did this or you know this really um brought a lot of things to a head to me and i'm like this is really great you know you don't know what a song or a movie is going to do for people. You just kind of have to make it and, and then let it, let it interact with the zeitgeist and the zeitgeist is going to do it. And that's the, the beauty of it. That's the beauty of making music or anything. When you, even at a very small level, you know, a, a super DIY level, um, like 10 years ago or whatever with heaven knows, it's like, you just make it. And, um, and and even at a big level, you don't know how something is going to react to other human beings, even if it is plugged into the giant algorithm of um, the modern music business or the modern filmmaking business or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. So you, to me, it's like you better care about it um, or don't do it at all. Yeah, and and I would I would say this too to anyone out there: if you see something you love, if you see something you're like this is amazing and more people should see it. Do your part and try to get more people to see it, whether it's just sharing a post on social media or even, you know, do what I do and hit up, <laughs> hit up Luke and yeah. just be like, Hey man, I yeah, love what you made. Me so. Hit me up. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah.